0: So this is Psalm 120. I'll be reading from English Standard Version. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you And what shall be more done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior sharps arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedr. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. This is God's word. Okay,
1: well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, as Eric mentioned, my name is also Eric, so maybe not hard to remember. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I've uh, known of Redeemer Church for a long time. Uh, I've been a pastor at North Cincy for six years, and before I was a pastor, I was a missionary of North Cincy, and before I was a missionary, I was a member, and before I was a member, I was a visitor, and before I was a visitor, I was a uh, Cincinnatian who grew up here, uh, who didn't really grow up in church, Uh, but anyway, I'm not going to give you my whole story, but through that experience, I met the Champagnes, went on my first mission trip to London with Mark, and I remember when Redeemer Church was just a curious prayer, uh, when uh, Mark had this desire, uh, and Mark and friends had this desire to plant a multi-ethnic church. Uh, and uh, it's just so wonderful all these years later to finally be here with you all and worship with you. I have worshipped with you in the past, but it was, like, it was like in 2013. It was a long time ago. Uh, so uh, it's good to be with you again. And to share a little bit with you about what God is teaching me through His Word, uh, through Psalm 120. You know, the Psalm 120 is what's known as a psalm of Ascent. And the scriptures as as a whole uh, give us a lot of what I call instructive hope, Um, a hope of tomorrow that informs how we live today. And specifically, the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to Psalm 135, are these beautiful psalms that were written by God's people that they would sing on their way to the temple. So many uh, in the ancient world, uh, many of God's people lived outside of Jerusalem, and they would travel to Jerusalem for religious festivals and feasts. And to worship God in the temple. And they would particularly sing these psalms as they would journey. As they would look forward to a hope that will be, but, re- but, but, uh, but realize that they're not there yet. And these psalms were, were psalms of hope that kept them going. And uh, what a relevant song for us. Um, and particularly, uh, what I love about Psalm 120 is that many people think that this is actually a psalm for people who can't go. Uh, who are stuck in their present situation for whatever reason and can't make the journey to the temple. Uh, so, um, but, but nonetheless, uh, Psalm 120 is our psalm as we as God's people who have trusted in Christ um, haven't fully realized uh, His kingdom come, right? We are praying uh, His kingdom come, His will be done on earth in Cincinnati as it is in heaven. So there are ways and we are to live in this present age that Psalm 120 uh, teaches us about. So I'll pray for us and the way that I like to teach and preach is just to go back through it. So uh, if you have a copy of God's Word on your phone or uh, with you, uh, that'll, we'll just work back through the text. And I'll, text. I'll make some observations and draw out some applications and be done. Okay, so let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Um, you're a God of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you have placed us here, in this place, in this moment. I pray that you, by your Spirit you would instruct us on how we are to live as faithful sojourners in this life that, that uh, live in your presence and declare your peace to our neighbors and to the world at large. Um, help us this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, a question that I want us to think about as we begin is this question. Where do you go and where do you find yourself when you're distressed? Right? Where do you go when you, things aren't right, when you're disoriented? Um, to be distressed is to suffer from anxiety or stress or grief. It is this, this negative emotion that comes over us. We are overwhelmed by demands beyond our capacity, losses that, that reorient and reshape our lives, right? Threats that challenge our sense of safety, well-being. Well being or, or livelihood, where do you go and to whom do you go when you find yourself distressed? Recently, um, after a church ser- service on a Sunday morning at North Cincy, my four year old daughter uh, walked outside of the church and found herself alone in the parking lot. And, and in her distress, she called out for me, but I was not around to hear her and uh, to come to her and to, to comfort her. And she kept crying and crying and crying with with no answer in return. So her distress amplified. It got louder and louder and louder. And it led her to wonder if she is lost or if her parents had forgotten her, if she was alone or left behind. And thankfully, somebody heard her cries and, and brought her to me. And as she came near, I could tell that she was obviously distressed. This was like the first time in her life that something like this had happened. So I picked her up, and I held her in my arms, and I said, What's wrong, honey? And she said, you know, Daddy, I couldn't find you, right? I didn't know where you were. And I just held her tight in that moment, and I just assured her of what was true. I said, honey, it's okay, because I am here now. I am here now. And after a moment, right, after I held her, and she realized that I was there and that she was safe and that everything was okay, her distress was calm because her sense of safety was restored. Her distress had transformed into peace, because of my her father's presence. And there's something so pure in how my daughter reacted amid her distress. She she cried out to her father because she knew that in that moment it was my presence and my presence alone that would provide for her the sense of peace that she was longing for. She she did not ignore her distress. She did not blame me or others. Uh, uh, you know because she was distressed. She not developed these fantasy ideas and solutions on how to get her distress away, right? She didn't start walking home or jumping somebody else's car. <laughs> that could have been, a, you know, a big problem for her. And thankfully, somebody heard her cries and, like I said, brought her to me. And, 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 and how does this relate to Psalm 120? Well, through the example of this psalmist, right, um, it encourages us, it reminds us of where we go, to to the Father that we cry out to when we find ourselves in times of distress, right? In my distress, I called out to the Lord. So where do you go? To whom do you go when you find yourself distressed? This psalm reminds us that it's not a matter of if we get distressed, but when we get distressed, right? When we get distressed, where do we go? What do we assume will bring us peace? Many of us, we are quick to blame others, right? We just we just believe that if they, whoever they are, if they just took responsibility of their mistakes, then our distress would cease and we would find peace. Or other times, uh, we are quick to just provide instruction to other people because we, we believe that if they just did things right, right, if they got control of their lives, if they just did things how I think they should do things, then my distress or my di- disorientation would, would go away. Or perhaps your method of handling distress is to act like it's not there, right? resulting in in this fragmented self that is disassociated from reality and from your present world that isn't in tune with what God is inviting you to in the moment that he has put you in with the distress that is happening around you. Either way, right, for many of us, our distress leads us to these fantasy worlds full of fantasy solutions that really does neglect who God is and what he may be inviting us to in the present moment, which is always, which is always a deeper union and a deeper communion with him. Not necessarily different circumstances, and this is what we see in Psalm 120. The psalmist's circumstances don't change, and there's no reality or a hope that things will change. He dwells in a land that is not his own amongst a people that are not him. Right? The psalmist cries out to God in this place, from this place, because he knows that God hears his cries, which empowers the psalmist to be a person of peace amid his distressing circumstances. And if there's one thing that I think that one takeaway Whatever it may be, uh, whatever you call it, uh, from Psalm 20, it's this. It's that God hears our cries. He he really does. He hears our cries. Um, He hears our cries. He does. When his children cry out to him in their distress, he hears it. He's not passive. He's not aggressive. He's not blind. He doesn't say, whoops. He hears your cries. And because God hears our cries, there's two things, two promises, two realities that could be true of us as because God hears our cries. The first is that we can have true peace amid distressing circumstances. And the second is that we can have true peace among distressing company. Peace among, amid distressing circumstances and peace among distressing cr- company. So let's first look at Psalm 1 as 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 the psalmist uh, reminds us of who he uh, cries out to in his distress, and who we are to call out to. Verse one: In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. What we learn here from the psalmist is that in our distress, distress there is always, always a pathway. ...to peace that comes from our communion and union with God. The psalmist names his distress. He does not ignore it. Amid his distressing circumstances, he cries out to God, which communicates what? That he trusts God, right? That he is somebody who has presented himself in such a way in the past where he can now come to him in the present. And God responds with an answer, right? We're not given these details on how God answers. We just know that he does, And for the psalmist, God's answer in God's presence is enough. As we continue, we're given insights into what exactly is causing this distress. Look at me in verse 2. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. The psalmist cries out to the Lord for deliverance, which again communicates trust. The psalmist is distressed, right? But his distress doesn't come from God. He is not distressed with God, He isn't distressed wondering if God can save him, if God didn't deliver him, or if God is there or not. Rather, his concern is directed towards those who are seeking to deceive him with their lies. The psalmist is experiencing relational conflict as people are seeking to deceive him, use him, and misuse him. The psalmist is being targeted and manipulated. He is distressed, and he cannot bear the weight of his own distress. So he rightly calls to the Lord, who can bear his distress for his deliverance. And As we continue, we see the psalmist address these deceivers more. Look at verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the bloom t- broom tree? The psalmist's peace with God empowers him to be present, even when difficulty is near. You know, peace with God does not make the psalmist passive. It is the truth of God that enables the psalmist to engage the lies and the deception of those around him. There is something about who God is and what the psalmist intimately knows about who God is that allows him to be present amid his distress. You know, perhaps the psalmist remembers uh, the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis when God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. The psalmist remembers God's words and God's promises and therefore finds his confidence accordingly. Or perhaps the psalmist knows that in the end, God will make every wrong right and judge every injustice rightly that in the end, evil will not win. Lies will not become true, and deception will not become a reality. Perhaps the psalmist is mindful of another psalm that tells us that God is the maker of heaven and earth, who upholds the cause of the oppressed, who sets the prisoner free, who lifts up those who are bowed down, who loves the righteous. And because of this promise... The psalmist confidently addresses both the lies and the liars with the harsh reality that the result of their deceit will be their own deception and therefore their own destruction. The psalmist's hope is in God's word, is in God, in his law, and his way. And because of this, he can rightfully name his distress, cry out to God amid his distress, and therefore be enabled to face those causing his distress. here we see the psalmist actively entrusting his circumstances to God, which then affects how he relates to others causing these circumstances. He does not attempt to manipulate his manipulators or deceive his deceivers. Rather, he knows God's truth, lives God's truth, and engages others honestly with God's truth. Uh, You know, perhaps uh, many of you have had rumors or have truths spread about you at some point in your life uh, that have harmed you or harmed your reputation, or you've worked hard on something and somebody else took credit for it, or maybe you entrusted yourself to someone, you were vulnerable to someone, and they used your vulnerability against you, and they deceived you and manipulated you, and this brought about a lot of grief and embarrassment. Whatever it may be, this kind of relational distress brought about through the lies and deceptions of others really is universal to the human experience. If you haven't experienced it yet, you probably will. You know, for me, I remember all the way back in fifth grade once when somebody sped a rumor about me that if true would have really killed my reputation and uh, maybe not have any friends. But most didn't believe this rumor, but a few did, which, which bothered me, right? Uh, it wasn't bothering me that, that what was being said about me, but that other people believed this rumor to be true. Uh, That's crazy. As it was, and, and the lie had multiplied, and deception added more deception, and lies became more lies. And I remember uh, wanting to stop this lie from spreading. So, in the moment, I didn't do what the psalmist did. Uh, I didn't cry out to God amid my distress and face uh, the lies with the hope and truth of God because I didn't know God. Therefore, I attempted to be my own hope and create my own peace. So, I began to do what? Spread lies about the liars spread deceit about the deceivers, I fought gossip with gossip, injustice with injustice, lies with more lies, and deception with more deception, only to create more problems for myself and more distress in my life. And we learned it from the example of the psalmist is that when we find ourselves in these circumstances, things will not go well for us when we answer our distress with more distress. I'm sorry, um, deception with more deception. We're slandered by others. We can often be tempted to answer a fool according to his folly, like Proverbs 26, 4 through 5 says. In place of crying out to God amid our distress for his deliverance, his peace, and his wisdom. And if you think about the life of Jesus, right? What an example. He was slandered. He was the son of God. There was no false way in him. An innocent man called a criminal. The one who literally was the way, the truth, and the life. He was called a liar. Lies and deception sent Jesus to the cross. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus rose above these lies to prove to us and to everyone that he is, in fact, who he said he was. The way, the truth, and the life. And and for us, if we trust in Jesus in the end, truth will win. We, we, We can confide in this. Even if our circumstances don't change, we don't see an end to the lies. Lies and deception... They may distress us, but they don't have the final say. Jesus does. But if we don't trust in Jesus, then there is no hope or guarantee that we can overcome the lies of others or that we can find true peace amid this distress. Like me in fifth grade, we may attempt to cultivate our own hope, be our own defense lawyer, only to create more distress and bigger holes that we can't get out of. Our only hope is found in the reality that Jesus rose above the lies. He rose above the deception. And because of this, we can know the way, the truth, and the life. And have a greater hope and a greater truth that has overcome this world. Psalm 120 empowers us to cry out to to the Lord because he hears our cries. And because the Lord hears our cries, we can go to him again and again and again. And have true peace amid distressing circumstances. And not only that, but also peace among distressing circumstances company. You know, individuals who perpetuate falsehood for their own benefit will always recruit other individuals. And often what happens is these individuals then gather into cultures or communities of falsehood that perpetuate falsehood for the mutual benefit of one another. This is called injustice. And, and the good news is that as followers of Christ, we can be empowered to differentiate and break free from the cultures of deceit around us and choose to therefore be people of peace who shine brightly in a misguided and misinformed world. This is what we see in verses 5 and 6. Look at this. "'Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have had my dwelling among those who hate peace.'" Verse verse 5 begins with the psalmist rightfully and honestly declaring the sadness of his present situation. This is a loaded word in Hebrew, woe to me. He gives a strong exclamation of grief by pronouncing himself as a cursed person because of who he's around. The psalmist does not sugarcoat his present situation or minimize his circumstances, and he founds a great amount of sadness in the reality that he is living among a people who are very different than he is. Value things very differently than what he values. He has the ability, but however, he has the ability to live as a foreigner in a foreign land. And the land they names are two people groups Meshech and Kedar. Uh, Meshech is, is a nomadic tribe that descended from Japheth, uh, who was one of the three sons of Noah. And we don't know much about Meshech, but we do know that they are not a part of the nation of Israel and therefore have probably various cultural differences and values and ways of doing things, considering. Additionally, Kedar is a nomadic tribe who descended from Abraham through Ishmael. Uh, likewise, we do not know much about the tribes of Kedar but like Meshech, they were not a part of the nation of Israel, and therefore it can be assumed that they didn't necessarily know God or follow God's law. And these two tribes are mentioned to communicate that, they find, that, the, that the psalmist finds himself dwelling among a foreign and dangerous people. The psalmist isn't just receiving deception from a person, but from a whole people group. He finds himself in a culture of deceit amongst a company of liars. And from this place, he therefore cries out to God. He does not detach from this place that he is in, nor conform to the place that he is in. Rather, he cries out to God from the place that he is in. And this communicates something interesting about the psalmist's understanding of deliverance. Uh, for him, deliverance isn't necessarily a longing to be removed from something, right? Uh, he doesn't say, God, get me out of this place. He says, he says, rather, help me to be present in this place, right? He wants to endure as a person of peace who has deep communion with God, the God of peace, among a highly distressing people. The psalmist knows the God of peace and therefore longs to reflect this peace to the world around him. That's what we see in verse 7, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. With the phrase, I am for peace, we see the responsibility of the faithful sojourner to be a person of peace amid a distressing people. Peace here is shalom in Hebrew, which uh, has, is, is just full of meaning in the Old Testament. Uh, the psalmist is saying, although I am, I am in the wilderness and dwell among a wilderness people, I will be a person of Eden, right? When God created the world and called it good, he declared it shalom, right? It's, it's calling back to Eden. He's saying, I will choose to be a person who walks with God amongst a faithless generation. I will be a person who trusts in God even when people don't. I will be a person who demonstrates God's kingdom even when it's not popular, The psalmist is able to differentiate himself, right? This is called differentiation, not disassociation. He can separate himself and his values from the culture around him and still be present in the culture around him. And because of this, he really can truly be a person of peace in a hostile world. You know, know, God's people are called to be different. Not just for the sake of being different, but because we are different, right? We, we, We are called to be a people of peace, because we have peace. A peace that comes from our deep communion with God through the blood of Christ. And this peace isn't dependent upon the world around us or our circumstances. Rather, it is because of the hope that is within us. For many of us, our peace isn't fixed on our proximity to God. Rather, it's, it's fixed or dependent upon our proximity to ease and to comfort. And because of this, We will never have peace because this world just isn't comfortable. Or perhaps many of us find our sense of well-being so rooted in the decisions of others or the world that we live in, so our peace is not found in God, but it's found in the opinions and actions of others. And we believe the lie that we will never be okay until they are okay or until they change. And because they never change and because they never make the right decisions, or behave in the right way, we really never have peace. But here in Psalm 120, the psalmist differentiates himself and his peace from the decisions and actions of others. His well-being is not dependent upon his circumstances changing. Rather, his peace is found in his proximity to God. And for him, this peace therefore empowers him to be a person of peace and to cultivate peace and to choose peace. And when I read Psalm 120, I I just can't help but think about the ministry and the life of Jesus. Jesus embodied Psalm 120 perfectly. In a world that rejected him, in a world that was hostile to him, in a world that was overcome with lies and deception, he chose to be a man of peace when they, his fellow Israelites even, were for war. And Jesus was a man of peace in three ways. He declared peace He demonstrated peace, and he died to make peace. Jesus walked and talked about the kingdom of God, calling people to repent of their sins and to believe in the God who forgives sins. He declared peace. Jesus healed the blind and the sick. He he embraced the outcast, the lonely, and the sinner. He protected the vulnerable. He demonstrated peace. And then Jesus died for his enemies. He gave himself so that those who were once dead in their sins and trespasses could have life in him, with him. And if we have cried out to God for his deliverance from the distressors of sin, we are now called to demonstrate that deliverance by being a people of peace in the places that God has put us in where our feet touch in our homes, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, and wherever else God may take you. We are called to pursue peace, cultivate peace, because we know the God of peace. And not just that, but because the God of peace knows us, and he hears us, relates to us, teaches us. We declare peace in what we say, we demonstrate peace in what we do, that we die to ourselves, to our comforts, because our comforts, we know that our comforts don't bring us peace. Our circumstances don't bring us peace, but only God can. We are called to pursue peace and be peacemakers as those who reflect Christ, our Prince of Peace, the one who took on our distress, so that by faith in Him and in His work, We really can have peace among a world that is not at peace and really never has been, and I'm assuming never will be. Psalm 120 reminds us that if we find ourselves distressed, we also find ourselves in an amazing opportunity to demonstrate the peace of God in a world to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors who desperately needs it. So the question that Psalm 120 encouraged us to ask ourselves is, how might God be using your distress to humble you so that you might see the distress of others and point them to a greater peace? What what if we lived our lives this way? What if we woke up every morning and asked ourselves this question? What if we viewed our distress as an opportunity? to die to ourselves and demonstrate and declare the peace of God in a distressed world. If we did this, I do believe that we would be less concerned with ourselves, less concerned with protecting our own interests, and more concerned with people, people around us. And living in such a way where we are salt and light, right? Salt preserves. Salt was used in the ancient world for a lot of things. One of the things that was used for it was to, to preserve meat from decay. What if Christians saw their, their vision, their lives in this way? We're called to be, to be salt and light, as Jesus taught us in Matthew 5. To preserve the world that we live in from the decay of sin brought about through the lies and deceptions of others. They don't seem to be going away anytime soon. So as we see, Psalm 120 teaches us all about the God who hears our cries. In our distress, when we cry out to God for deliverance, he hears us and because he hears us, we can have two promises that we can cling to. We can have two, true peace amid distressing circumstances and true peace among distressing company. And because these two things are true, we can be the people of God who demonstrate and declare the peace of God to a distressed world. Um, so where do you go when you find yourself distressed? To whom do you go? Right? Psalm 120 reminds us to pause and to pray and to therefore make peace. Not for the sake of peace, right? Um, The end is not peace, right? The end is, is the glory of God and the good of others. It's the great commandment. It's to point others to the prince of peace so they might experience his peace and therefore be transformed into peacemakers who shine brightly in this dark and distressed and desperate and deceptive world. May God make us a people like that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that we can be a p- people of peace, that this isn't something we have to work really hard for or some secret that we have to uncover, but it, it, it's available to us in the gospel. The good news that, that Christ is our peacemaker, that we are hostile towards you and that you made peace and therefore have brought us near. Will you help us to see our lives, this one life that you've given us, And give us a vision for peacemaking in the places you put us in. Amen.